So welcome back to the Russia Contingency, my uh, podcast on War in the Rocks. Today I have, I think, was wonderful guests, one, one, one of my longtime colleagues, friends, to an extent, mentor, well-known uh, historian, I don't think needs much introduction, Steve Kotkin. Uh, Steve uh, was a longtime professor at Princeton, now a professor at Stanford, if I'm getting that right, uh, having completed a recent move. And is the author of many books, a forthcoming third book to complete his trilogy on Stalin, uh, which I hope, I very much hope he's working on because I'm excited to, to see the, the third tome in that trilogy come out. But today I actually want to talk with Steve a bit about the dissolution of the Soviet Union and, and the history running up to it and some of the things that he's actually most knowledgeable on, certainly much more than me. The Soviet Union. To some extent, you know, formally ends up being dissolved, or at least most people remember this history as having taken place in December in 1991, right? There's the Bill of Leisure Courts signed, I think, on the 8th, and it's de facto enters into force, I think, around the 25th when Gorbachev gives up power. Is that a fair kind of reading of what took place? Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here. We love your podcast. We love War on the Rocks, indispensable material. So, yeah, we need to remember that the dissolution of the Soviet Union did occur in December 1991, formally, which, of course, is 31 years ago now. But it was done by the president, the elected president of Russia, the elected president of Ukraine, and the elected president of Belarus. It was not dissolved by the CIA. It was not dissolved by George H.W. Bush. It was not dissolved by anybody in the West. It was dissolved by the three protagonists of the major Slavic Union republics of the 15 Union republics, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Whether it was a legal act or an illegal act, whether they did it while completely drunk or just mostly drunk, we could debate those issues, but we cannot debate the fact that they did it themselves. So let me ask something. I, I very much share the view that the collapse of the Soviet Union was not overdetermined. And if anything, kind of policies in the West United States may have been a contributing factor, right? But most of the drivers of the dissolution of the Soviet Union were internal. And I know you're to some very much to extend authority on the subject. So I do want to ask you. If you were to peg what you think were the leading factors that that led the leadership of the Soviet Union down that path, because Gorbachev, when he first took over, not only tried to save the Soviet Union, right, but he actually tried to to save it by investing and um, I- investing in the existing sort of methods and practices. Only later, when that didn't work, did he try reforms. Is that fair? You're right that the Soviet Union's collapse was not something that was inevitable. It was something that happened as a result of several really critical factors. The biggest thing that happened to the Soviet Union was the world outside the Soviet Union changed. This was um, something that didn't necessarily kill the Soviet Union, but changed the game. So during the rise of the Soviet state, under, under first Lenin and then Stalin, 
The West was in Great Depression for a lot of that time. Mass unemployment, capitalism looked like a failure. There was a massive control through imperialism of foreign colonies. Many of the countries that we celebrate today as stable democratic rule of law countries were fascist, Nazi, totalitarian regimes. And so the Soviet Union arose against that background. And its argument was that we have a better answer. Sure, maybe we have some problems. Maybe things are not going as well as we hope they go. But we're the future. Capitalism is the past. Capitalism is mass unemployment. Capitalism is war. Capitalism is dictatorship. And we can do better. We can bring abundance, peace, happiness through socialism. And so this argument had one context in the 1930s. And then all of a sudden, after World War II, where, as you know, the Soviet Union played a very significant, some would say decisive role, the international context of the Soviet Union changed utterly. All of a sudden, capitalism wasn't Great Depression. It was post-World War II economic boom middle-class economic boom, by the way, where the boom was widely distributed. My father worked in an embroidery factory and he bought a house, just as an example. This was true across the West. West Germany had over 10% annual GDP growth for years on end. Japan had a phenomenal post-World War II. Both of those countries had been defeated and ruined in World War II and yet they rose from the ashes. In addition to this being a middle-class economic boom, there was decolonization. And Europe, mostly reluctantly, European states gave up their empires. And so there was no more imperialism in the old sense. And in addition to the absence of fascism and the absence of imperialism and the post-war economic boom, in addition to all of that, you had quite a lot of efflorescence in the culture and soft power and things that we tend to put under the soft power rubric. So the West came out of World War II kicking butt. And the Soviet Union now had a very different context in which to operate. And the Soviet Union's argument, as you know, Mike, was we're better than capitalism. Capitalism is exploitation, it's alienation, it's war, it's imperialism, and we're better than that. And it turned out that that argument was really hard to make in the post-World War II context. So geopolitically, geopolitically, the Soviet Union was in a different competition now. And, And it wasn't Nazi tanks coming up over the hill, Mike. It was chemical perms and children's toys and women's stockings. And all the accoutrements of consumer society. And so nylon stockings coming up over the hill, the Soviets had no answer for that. They had an answer for the Nazi tanks coming up over the hill. And so how were they going to play the consumer game? How were they going to play the game on Western terms now with a transformed West? So in losing this geopolitical competition, we could go into greater detail here, Mike. So, for example, there were allies and satellites. You and I can go in a schoolyard and, and choose up sides now to have a competition. I get first pick. Uh, I'll take Japan. 
Now you get second pick, you get Romania. I, I get the next pick, I'll take West Germany. You get the next pick, you, you East Germany. I'll take France, you take Czechoslovakia. And on it goes, right? So that the Western alliance compared to the Soviet satellite or Soviet bloc was also extremely unequal and also suffered all of these same problems. So here you have this setup where you thought you're playing one game and now you're playing a different game and you're badly losing that game. However, just because you're losing doesn't mean you have to give up. And this is where your argument about the fact that it was not collapsing is spot on. It just had lost the geopolitical competition, but there was no reason for it to capitulate. Yeah, absolutely. Can I, well, let me make a couple of points. I'm just kind of curious how you react to them. So, you know, my sense of it was that the Soviet Union felt that actually the tide of history and the balance of power, the correlation of force in international politics was on its side, right? In the 60s, going into the 70s, that's probably when it felt strongest. Well, actually, economically, it was stagnating and the growth of GDP began to decline in the late 60s. Then by 70s, it became, becomes clear that Soviet foreign policy is very expensive. You know, Brezhnev kind of expands the competition all across the, the third world, while the economy itself is stagnating. And the writing's on the wall for people like Andropov. That's part of the reason folks like Gorbachev get selected in the first place, is because it becomes clear that they need a change. But if we look, if we look at a situation going to the 80s, uh, I, I try to think about what really mattered about uh, Soviet collapse. To me, Maybe the first, the most important factor is it was the reforms that Gorbachev launched that somebody else might not have launched, right? That the principle, the first principle factor was um, the external world, as the Soviet Union was in relative decline compared to considerable Western growth, which was not the case in 50s and 60s. So it felt like it had to do something. And then, so there were, you know, external inputs into what the Soviet Union was trying to do. But the second question is, okay, well, what do you do about it? Well, you know, you could have had the Chinese approach, right? You could have had steady modernization or economic liberalization, but without political liberalization. Or you could have ended up with what Gorbachev ended up doing. And it's actually the, the leadership, the agency of Gorbachev and, and the choices he made, but also the choices people like Yeltsin made, right? Which is you had a host of leaders who themselves wanted to be in power. You know, from my point of view, you know what's the only thing that's better than being president of the Russian Socialist uh, Republic of the Soviet Union is being president of the Russian Federation, possibly, right? What's more attractive? So I don't know how you would react to that, but they also were motivated to dissolve the Soviet Union from the inside and focus on the problems and uh, as, as sort of reforms in the process got out of hand. And Gorbachev found himself stuck both between the people who were most intransigent that wanted to keep the Soviet Union intact, the kind of reactionary forces, and the much more liberalizing forces that were unhappy with the pace of his reforms and the back and forth, or my, or my caricaturizing this a bit. You went pretty fast through that, Mike. So there's quite a lot in there. Let's slow it down a little bit, <laughs> your listeners. Sorry, I, I was, I was trying to. That's one of the challenges of learning English in Boston is that you tend to talk pretty fast. <laughs> no, it, it was all good. It was just, I think we we just need to pick a few things out of that. The reason why the so the the Westerners as well as internally in the Soviet Union, analysts did not foresee the Soviet collapse, Mike, was because the Soviet Union was not collapsing. You can't foresee something that's not happening. In fact, important point. In fact, economic growth was fine. The economy was growing. There were two years of negative growth in the very late 
70s, early 80s. But otherwise, the economy was growing. In fact, the economy grew under Gorbachev. There was growth in 86 and 87 and 88. Only in 1990 uh, did economic growth hit a wall. And so the issue was not economic growth, not economic collapse. As you know, the oil that was discovered in Siberia in the very late 50s, 59, and especially in the 60s, came online right at the end of the 60s and the early 70s. Massive, massive deposits in Western Siberia predominantly. And then we had the oil shock in 73. And the oil shock raised the price of oil 400% in a few months. So the Soviets had 400% more hard currency in a few months than they had previously in terms of pricing. And in terms of volume, they had infinitely more because of this massive amount of oil that they discovered that they could now sell abroad. And so you're flush. In the mid-70s through the late-70s, there was a second oil shock in in the second half of the 70s as well. They were completely flush. And that's the decade where they reached military parity with us, which is pretty phenomenal given that their economy was probably never larger than one-third the size of the American economy. And yet they reached military parity, including at the nuclear level. Okay, you could say that uh, some quality issues were there, that certain Western weapons were higher quality and this and that. Mike, you know that stuff better than I do. But basic military parity we're talking about at superpower level. And, And so, yeah, they felt things were going their way. The West had the oil shock, the Rust Belt. Vietnam, Watergate, uh, riots in the streets, political assassinations. For sure, they thought the world was going their way. And they had that big oil money boosting their military budget, uh, buying some consumer imports, especially for the elites, 12, 15 different types of sausage in the store during the Brezhnev years. So what we call stagnation retrospectively was actually a Soviet boom. Now, you can argue that it was illusory. Yes, the West came out of the Rust Belt better because they were forced to restructure, whereas the Soviets refused to restructure their Rust Belt, which just went merrily along until it hit a wall much harder later on. But the basic point here is that they were not collapsing economically. Your your listeners should know that Michael Elman and Vladimir Kantorovich in the 90s uh, issued a fantastic book on the destruction of the Soviet economy rather than the collapse of the Soviet economy, showing that the Soviet economy was not collapsing. And so your, your point that they felt the world was going their way, uh, I think, needs to just be extended that the collapse wasn't foreseen again because it was not happening. We could extend this argument to the nationalism stuff as well, to the dissident story. As you know, the vast majority of dissidents were in prison or internal exile. So the idea that they brought the system down is just not empirically true. They were courageous people. The vast majority of dissidents, in fact, were religious dissidents who suffered for their religious beliefs. But that's not why the system collapsed. And and the nationalism was also under control. Remember, it was Gorbachev who introduced a a multi-candidate free and fair elections that allowed nationalists to get elected. They had no opportunity to make it into the public realm before his reform period. And even during his reform period, the nationalism was not predominant. 
as I'll argue later on, perhaps it was the ethno national structure of the union rather than nationalism per se. So, so what happened, Mike, what happened was ideology. The thing that everybody thought was dead, communist ideology, right? Socialism with a human face, the idea that you could make this system better, that you could re-energize it, that you could open it up, not fully, but you could open it up partially, right? Economic liberalization, political liberalization, while maintaining the communist monopoly on power and the communist monopoly on the public sphere. It was ideology which people thought was dead that actually killed the system through the person of Gorbachev. It's, that's an interesting point. So the I've heard different arguments out there by people like economic historians like Chris Miller and others that it, it, Gorbachev, uh, to some extent, I mean, he did create issues in dramatically driving up the debt and trying to buy off different constituencies for his reforms. And he didn't have to do that. The approach he took created massive deficits, but that does not combined with the common effects of um, reduced price for oil uh, at a certain point in the 1980s. But this, but this all came together largely because of choices he made and the reactions to his choices from within the system. Respects elites is that fair? Because he could have actually taken a very different approach. And if that's the case, then I guess the big question for you would be: you know, if you identify the lead factors, why did Gorbachev do it this way? <laughs> you know, uh, you know the arguments about the Nazi, right? The Nazi occupation in World War II in the Soviet Union. If they had only had a better Nazi occupation, if they had only uh, allowed collaboration, if they had only allowed the the subhumans to participate politically, they would have easily won the war, right? In other words, if the Nazis had been more accommodating in their occupation of the territories they conquered, there was a path to victory. And the problem with that argument, Mike, is they were Nazis. The reason they launched they, the war- They couldn't was, have been. They, they launched the war in the first place for the same reason they had the extermination campaign under the occupation, because they were Nazis. So Gorbachev could have done this, and he could have done that, and he could have done this, but he was a communist ideologue, Mike. He wasn't Deng Xiaoping figure to the extent that we think we understand Deng Xiaoping. He was a guy who was Hungary in 56, Prague Spring especially in 1968, where if you opened up the system liberalized. You didn't destroy the communist monopoly on purpose. You didn't end the monopoly. But if you opened it up, you would reach a reform equilibrium at a better spot. And it turned out there was no reform equilibrium. There was no place where you opened up and things got looser and then it stopped and it was stable again, an equilibrium. When you opened up, when you said, okay, we're going to allow debate inside the communist party, Somebody got up and said, you know, I don't like the Communist Party. The hell with the Communist Party. I want a different party, Mike. And they said, well, wait a minute. That's not what we're talking about. We're just liberalizing inside the communist monopoly. But people, once you liberalize, once you relax censorship, once you allow debate, some of them don't want communism. They don't want the communist monopoly anymore. So the problem with opening up with reform is 
you don't have a place where you can stop and maintain your monopoly and everything is hunky-dory. So you either keep going with the reform, in which case you liquidate the system, like Hungary in 56 or Czechoslovakia in 68, or you have a crackdown, in which case you put the lid back on and you end the liberalization and you retain the system, which is what Moscow did both in 56 and 68. But Mike, who was going to send the tanks to Moscow when it was Gorbachev, the general secretary, who was opening up? You know, on this China stuff, and Gorbachev could have done a China, there's just a lot of rubbish about that, uh, Mike. I mean, first of all, uh, he had a massive industrial economy, not a low-income peasant economy where peasants could move to cities. The Soviets had done that move already under Stalin, and that wasn't available anymore. Mm -hmm. Move up from low-income to middle-income, that was over. Secondly, the Chinese had access to the American domestic market, American middle class, American consumers, because Deng Xiaoping came to the U.S. in January 79. And from 1980, they had most favored nation status every year temporarily until Clinton gave it to him permanently. That is a communist regime in China had complete almost access to the American domestic market. Mike, they had Hong Kong which was a British-created uh, international rule of law financial system that could direct foreign direct investment into China by market criteria rather than political criteria. Soviet Union had no Hong Kong. They had The FDI came from Taiwan and Japan and included technology transfer, but it was directed via Hong Kong. No Hong Kong, no Chinese miracle. And the Soviets, Gorbachev, had no Hong Kong. So even if Gorbachev had not been the communist ideologue, socialism with a human face, Hungary, 56, Czechoslovakia, 68 person that he was, even if he had not been that, the Soviets lacked the tools to do anything like what the Chinese did because it was not the Chinese Communist Party. It was American domestic consumers, it was FDI from Taiwan and Japan, and it was Hong Kong right at the center of this. So if you add all of that up right. together, uh, the options were muddle on, on drop of style where you crack down on corruption, where you spend more on uh, a military industrial complex, where you maybe buy off the consumers domestically if oil prices are high. But if oil prices crash, as they did in 1986, inconveniently for Gorbachev, then you need a little bit austerity instead of making uh, promises about the coming nirvana. Sure, they could have muddled on Gorbachev, uh, Andropov style, but that's not who Gorbachev was. And here's the irony of all this. You're exactly right. The KGB is the one organization that pushes Gorbachev forward. Because they're looking at this competition, this geopolitical competition with the West, which is where we began. They see that they're falling farther behind. They see that they don't have computers and the entire information age economy, as they called it, then is passing them by. They need to re-energize the system somehow, not cashier the system, right, but re-energize it in order to compete with the West, that ancient uh, mission of power in Russia going back to the czars. And so they bring this guy Gorbachev and they don't realize 
that he is a pie-in-the-sky socialism with a human face, true-believing communist. They think that he's just younger and understands that you got to invest in military-industrial complex, modernization, they need computers, yada, yada, yada. Right? You get this. And so he turns out to be a bit of a surprise for the hard men who push him forward against this decrepit, you know, septuagenarian, dying off elite, Brezhnev, Suslov, Chernyenko, Andropov himself. They're all dying one by one. Uh, kidney failure, organ failure across the board, emphysema, right? The system is moribund at the top and they want to re-energize it. But there's no plan to collapse it. It's not collapsing, as we said. But also there's no plan to create this pie-in-the-sky socialism with a human face except in the head of Gorbachev and in the handful hmm. of aides around him. It's not in the military-industrial complex, Mike. It's not in the KGB. It's not in the regime at large. It's a handful of aides. And it's this ideological general secretary who represents a whole generation of the Soviet system, the 1960s generation, the Prague Spring generation. Let's remember that the ideologue of the Prague Spring is Denyek Munarsh, the Czechoslovak uh, Communist Party ideologue who thinks up the Prague Spring and, and uh, lays it out theoretically. He's Gorbachev's roommate in the 50s at Moscow State University. It's very clear, by the way, on the uh, military-industrial complex side, right? The Soviet military is actually quite frustrated when Gorbachev comes in, starts talking about defensive sufficiency, uses arms control to reduce the cost of the competition, gives away some of the general staff's favorite toys, like uh, SS-23 uh, Oka during the INF negotiations, starts accepting treaties that, on balance, are much more favorable to the United States, actually. Th there's benefits to the Soviet Union because they reduce a lot of the costs, right? But he's giving away a lot of the general staff stuff. And he's reducing the expenditure in the military. And uh, in general, in the sense that um, uh, it, it's clear that they're quite unhappy. KGB is also unhappy with what's happening. Look at the pressure Reagan is applying, Mike. Look at the pressure, right? Reagan is deploying intermediate nuclear forces in Europe against uh, mass public demonstrations, right? You got this Reagan-Schultz peace through strength pressure and SDI and all the other mythologies in some part uh, of, of the Reagan defense buildup. The Reagan defense buildup was real and then it had some of these whiz-bang techno things that, that we still don't have in reality, but he threatened to deploy them. And so you get this Reagan re-energizing -ener of the Western alliance the Reagan military buildup, which, as you know, started under Carter after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Reagan doubled down. He was very persuasive. He was a lifelong anti-communist. And then when the concessions came from Gorbachev, Reagan and Schultz were ready to pocket them because they had introduced a diplomatic process alongside the buildup. So the peace through strength was real. It was a brilliant strategy and it was working and the pressure was felt in Moscow. So it was a kind of doubling down on the fact that the West won the geopolitical competition. And what are you going to do about it? And, and, and you're right. What they wanted to do about it was not give away their best stuff, was not hand over in asymmetric treaties. These massive concessions that Gorbachev made in order to 
reduce the tensions. And let's remember Gorbachev won the Nobel Peace Prize for reducing tensions. But that's not why they moved him forward on the inside. And so he begins, he begins to unfold domestically this socialism with a human face, which twice before has liquidated communism in Hungary and in, in Czechoslovakia. And he's going to do it again. And his argument is that it's not that the system will unravel if we open it up. It's that the hardliners, the conservatives, the anti-reformers won't let us do what we need to do. So they went against Hungary in 56. They went against the Prague Spring and they may go against us again. So we have to keep these conservatives and hardliners at bay because they're the threat. I'm not the threat. I'm not destroying communism unwittingly by trying to reform it. Communist ideology is not the threat in Gorbachev's mind. It's the conservative revanche that's the threat. So he's maneuvering to keep them at bay. And one of the things he does, Mike, is he sacrifices the key structure that holds the union together because it's the conservative power base. And that's the so-called secretariat of the Communist Party. Let's remember that the Soviet Union was an ethno-territorial federation. In other words, on paper... Wait, what does that mean? Hold on. On paper... Oh, Steve, I gotta stop you. This is the important point. Yeah, on paper, according to the Soviet Constitution, the Soviet Union was a federation made up of 15 union republics. The 15 union republics were the highest status republics, and they were ethnically determined. So there was a Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, you know that well. There was a Belarusian. There was I'm a. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so this federation on paper of Soviet socialist republics was ethnically determined. And of course, the federation on paper did not serve that way in practice because the Communist Party was a pyramid. Communist Party Secretariat was the top of the pyramid with the General Secretary Gorbachev. And then because of party discipline, all party officials were subordinated to those decisions out of Moscow, out of the party secretariat. So the party overrode the federation. The party was nominally ethnic in the sense that there was also a Ukrainian Communist Party. But the Ukrainian Communist Party had no power. In practice, it was completely subordinated to the Central Committee, to the Pyramid, to the Secretariat in Moscow. And in fact, there was no Russian Communist Party because it overlapped entirely with the Soviet one, showing what this system really was in practice, which was to say a Communist Party pyramid on top of an ethno-territorial federation where the units, the ethnically determined units like Ukraine and Belarus, according to the Soviet Constitution, had the right to secede if they wanted to. Good luck exercising that, given yeah, that the party right. ruling. But now if you sabotage the secretariat, Mike, if you sabotage the Communist Party's machine, because it's the power base of the conservatives, of the potential revanchists, of the anti-reformers, of the potential crackdown, which happened to Khrushchev, right, in 1964, 
and which happened when the Soviets did it, leading the Warsaw Pact, invading Czechoslovakia in 68. If you could hold them at bay, if you sabotage their power base, you could continue to push your reforms through and not suffer that fate. But it turns out that then you actually empowered the republics. You empowered the federation on paper to become a federation in practice. And so the union republics all of a sudden were not just these nominal fake quasi-states stuck inside a hierarchical pyramidical union with communist party discipline. They were in fact now semi-autonomous actors inside a voluntary federation and they began to feel their oats and they began to issue laws that contradicted Soviet law. So Gorbachev did all this and he did it without understanding that the party overrode the federal structure of the union. So this is why the loss of the Communist Party also meant the loss of the Soviet Union. You could have lost the party and kept the state, kept the Soviet state, if the Soviet state had not been an ethnically determined federation of 15 union republics. This is why Putin and his gang detest Lenin. Because this was Lenin's structure, Mm -hmm. right? Lenin was the one who came up with this union of Soviet socialist republics, whereby they would enter into co-equal voluntary status, Ukraine and Russia and Belarus, and then all the rest of them, 15 eventually. And, And they detest Lenin for this structure because the loss of the party meant the loss of the Soviet state, which Gorbachev did not understand in real time. And even in his memoirs, he doesn't explain this. It doesn't seem he fully understood it after the fact in his memoirs. We would have to add in Eastern Europe's implosion here and the effect on the Union and some other things. But basically, you got this crazy combination of internal, unwitting self-destruction, socialism with a human face, Communist Party liberalization, plus the union's ethno-territorial structure, which only the party pyramid overrides, and then the willing destruction of the party pyramid in order to make sure that Gorbachev stayed in power. We can argue that, you know, how much he understood that and didn't understand how much the Khrushchev example was on his mind. But we can argue that beginning in the summer of 88, right, he did not begin to sabotage his own party secretary because he did. And that unsettled the union. This is wonderful. I, I have a couple threads I want to pull. The first is my sense on Putin is that he and people like him have a very love-hate relationship with the Soviet Union and what the Bolsheviks created. Because on the one hand, of course, they love the status, the reputation the Soviet Union had. They love that it was feared. They love that they had this perception of being co-equal to the United States, international politics, although much of that was based much more on nuclear peerage than economic peerage, but nonetheless. So this is what they're always attracted to, and they're and they're and they're um, they've always been in love with the period of detente, the sixty-nine to seventy-nine period that they always want to get back to, to a sense of informal understanding and a deal to compartmentalize the competition and recognize them as much more equal than they actually were. The part they hate, of course, I I fully agree with you, is that the belief that uh, the system that that the Bolsheviks and Lenin ultimately created allowed 
for the collapse of the Soviet Union and within it for the collapse of the Russian Empire, for the giving away of so-called Russian territories that Putin harps on quite a bit. And as he refers to these as like sort of gifts that were given to these states that they took with them when they left the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was a federated state. And, and in that regard, he's sort of classically revanchist or redentist. There's not much new. There's not much specific new there in his leadership outlooks. But I have a thorny question for you because I'm very curious what you think on this. So, you know, historians have debated to what extent was the Soviet Union an empire or was it more of this multinational state? And I've seen different views on it. Some people have clear positions on it, like Sheila Fitzpatrick, for example. And, and and how would we know? Is it a question of the political relationship of the center to the rest of it? Is it a question of co- uh, organization? Like you have, you, you must have views on the subject. How best to think of the Soviet Union? And maybe it's better to think of it differently, depending on are we thinking about Stalin's period of the Soviet Union? Are we thinking about the post-Stalin Soviet Union? So you're an empire if you break up, right? Right. Look at Indonesia today. Is Indonesia a nation state or an empire? Is India a nation state or an empire? They're more diverse than the Soviet Union ever was. Both Indonesia and India are far more diverse than the Soviet Union. But they're considered nation states. Now, if they were to break up, I'm not predicting this. I'm not saying anything is happening like that. But if they were to break up into all sorts of smaller ethnic units where their languages uh, would no longer be the national language but the local language, we would say, oh, my God, these were empires to a large extent. But but instead, well, instead, they were able to assimilate vast diversity into a larger nation with a, a language that they learn in school, the national language, and with a commitment to the larger state and Indian citizenship or Indonesian citizenship. Right, as opposed to Balinese citizenship or Javanese citizenship or Keralan citizenship or or Bihari citizenship, right? You get this. And so the Soviet Union failed to assimilate over time into a larger loyal unit Soviet nationhood. The Soviet nation existed. My Kazakhs who spoke no Kazakh and lived in Russia or lived in Kazakhstan, were part of the Soviet nation. The Soviet nation was real. But Mm -hmm. once you fail to assimilate everyone, and once there are people who are out, retrospectively, you're easily stamped as an empire. Right? The United States has been able to assimilate people from all over the entire world. Immigrants were an immigrant country with vastly different languages and culture, into something called America. Now, it hasn't been easy. There, It's still a project that's ongoing. Some people resist assimilation, right? We get all of that. But the assimilation or failure to assimilate, plus the crack-up or the, or, or, or the non-crack-up, in many ways determines this debate about empire and not empire. The Baltic states in some ways were an exception because they were incorporated much later, as you know. The Baltic states were part of Tsarist Russia, but they got out after 1918. Uh, unlike Finland, they were they were reincorporated as a result of World War II. Finland was also part of the Tsarist Empire for a time. So the Baltic states had less time inside the Soviet Union. The United States did not recognize Baltic 
incorporation. That's right. So that the U.S. ambassador to Moscow could not visit the Baltic states because that was not considered part of his um, territory, Soviet territory. And so Jack Matlock, the last ambassador of the U.S. to the Soviet Union, didn't go to the Baltic states as ambassador. So the Baltic states were something of an exception. And and so so many ways people will take the Baltic exception for the empire argument in its strongest form, right? But anyway, you get this, right, Mike? So so the issue for us is this: um, if the Soviet Union had not been structured so that Ukraine had a state, even if it was a fake state or or a pretend state, if it had been structured merely as a province, like it was in the Tsarist Empire. Let's remember the Tsarist Empire did not have these ethnic units inside of it, right? Except for Finland, which was an exception, and Congress Poland, mm-hmm. which was an exception. The Tsarist Empire instead had provinces. That was true of the Caucasus, where we have Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan in the Soviet era. We didn't have anything like that in the Tsarist era. There was no Ukraine in Tsarist Russia as a recognized unit of the state. So this is something that World War I cracks open the Tsarist Empire. These ethno-territorial units arise, in some cases under German occupation or even under Ottoman occupation. Lenin decides to assimilate them by allowing them to be these constituent units of the new state, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So he accepts the genie that's out of the bottle, and he says we're going to manipulate it and we're going to communize, right? The Communist Party idea is this. It's that if you want to teach the gospel, you have to teach it in the vernacular. In other words, just like the missionaries in the Russian Empire, Lenin knew of them, if you want to teach communism in Ukraine, you teach it in Ukrainian. If you want to teach communism in Georgia, you teach it in Georgian. So you teach them the communist gospel in the vernacular, but you have this party structure that allows you centralized power because the party's a machine. It's not a political party standing for elections, which has this discipline built in that everyone must follow. So that structure was was like a, a set of dynamite implanted inside the union. And when Gorbachev unintentionally shook everything up, right, he shook up the party Mm -hmm. by accident, by liberalizing. He shook up the economy by introducing market mechanisms, which allowed people just to steal everything because the property was state property in name. But it was my property because I was the one de facto controlling it. The closest you were to the property, the more you could expropriate it under the guise of market reforms So he destabilized the economy, he destabilized the party, and he destabilized the union. But the the bomb, the the, the nitroglycerin, had been implanted by Lenin years ago. So now you're in the situation where you weren't collapsing, you you started to re-energize the system, and now everything is collapsing across the board. It's a stunning turn of events. Okay, if you had watched Czechoslovakia in 68, you would have understood this. And if you're the Chinese communist regime today in Beijing, you understand this really well, because this is the main subject that party school 
inside the Chinese Communist Party, right? They're never going to do a socialism with a human face and liquidate themselves. But you're Gorbachev and you think it's just the anti-reform conservatives that are the problem. So you got to keep pushing. You got to keep going forward. You got to keep more reform, more openness, uh, more glossness, more perestroika. Yeah, until you lose control. And then you have no control. And then what do the rest of the elites do, Mike? The vast majority of them, they're looking in this storm and they're doing two things. First, they're latching on to those union republics as a safe way to preserve power. So help the hell with the union. I'll just take Ukraine. The hell with the union. I've got Kazakhstan. The hell with the union. I've got my union republic. So they can save their skin and they can keep themselves and everybody else in power just by latching on to those union republics, which everybody laughed at. Ha, ha, ha. They're fake. It's not real. They're not actually a federation. But once you destabilize the union, you have them. And so Boris Yeltsin grabs onto Russia and on it goes. And you know that story. But the other thing, Mike, is you can steal the property. You see, because we're now going to move to a market. We're now going to privatize. We're now going to re-energize through market systems. Well, that was the Western idea. Shock therapy. Let's privatize everything in the country where no one has any capital so they can use their actual access to resources and power. Yeah, but it happened to before the shock things. therapy, Mike. The shock therapy was too late to implement because the, the factory directors, they just stole the property. They expropriated it to themselves or in the ministry. So you're sitting there in the ministry. The thing is all falling apart. The union is falling apart. The econ- planned economy the Communist Party, what do you got left? You sit there, you write a decree, Mike. You say, the following metals factory is transferred to me, signed by me. The following uh, nursery school uh, next to my apartment is transferred to me by me. And so you get this massive internal theft expropriation by the elites. So this means... They can stay in power with the union republics and they can take the property like Orwell said in Animal Farm written in the 40s, in 1945. They, they return to Manor Farm, right, that the pigs in charge of Animal Farm expropriate and they go back like they're capitalists. But that means, Mike, that you won't defend the union till your death because you can stay but giving up the union. You can say the hell with the communist planned economy, the hell with the Soviet Union. It's destabilized. It's crashing. It's collapsing. It's going. But how about me? I can save me and I can save me because I can become president of Russia or I can work for the KGB in Russia or I can be the chief of staff for the army in Russia, even though the union one is disappearing. And moreover, not only can I do that, but I can become rich in the process. So, so Armageddon is averted. They don't go to the wall to save their system because they can save themselves by stealing the property and latching on to the union in the storm, the union republics that were created under Lenin and Stalin. And so this is this crazy process where you go from stability for the most part. Sure, they don't have productivity like the U.S. or Western Europe or Japan. Sure, they're, they're avionics are second rate and third rate compared to the Pentagon's avionics. 
Mike, we could go down the whole list of where they're not, yeah. they're not in the top. They're behind us. But hey, they still have the oil money. They still have full employment. They still have people don't know what the outside world really looks like because there's censorship and, and the border is closed. They're still muddling through. All of a sudden, they're opening up. They're reforming. They're destabilizing everything unwittingly. And now they're in a storm and they're latching on to the few things they've got, which means letting the rest go. And we didn't even get to the mythologies of the collapse, which are really important for the Putin regime. But I just I just wanted people to understand that it's not the economy collapsing. It's not nationalism. It's reform itself. It's communist ideology within the larger context of the pressure of the West winning the Cold War before the fact. This concludes part one of my conversation with Steve Kotkin. Please stay tuned for part two.